All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on 1 Kings. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, we had entered chapter 3 last week. We saw Solomon's first activities as king. I was hesitating. I don't know exactly what to call those activities. He was cleaning house. He was, uh, he was eliminating his political enemies in accordance largely with David's instructions. And now we transition to this chapter, very famous, with Solomon and his prayer for wisdom. So in chapter 3, let's pick up at verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. As we talked last week, there's ambiguity. This doesn't have to be a bad thing. It may be, it may be a good thing that later becomes a bad thing. It's just one of those ambiguities in the text that kind of makes you go, hmm. <laughs> and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. So this is very interesting, and I think really challenges a paradigm that we've slumped into as uh, later Lutherans. And that paradigm is that no human being could ever be described as faithful or righteous or upright of heart. But what we're going to see is not only does Solomon make this claim of David, and for crying out loud, we spent how many weeks and how many chapters looking at David's life, it was not entirely uh, sinless. <laughs> and yet Solomon is going to describe David in this way, and he's not going to be rebuked by the Lord. Indeed, the Lord is going to restate that this is exactly how David was. So that means we don't have to use this absolutist category all the time. It's, it's helpful to use a kind of absolutist category, like James does. If you break the law in one place, you are guilty of all of it. So there's a, there's a good use of this absolutist category of, hey, if you've committed one sin, you're, you're a sinner entirely. And in this, in this way of speaking, then, you know, you could not be called uh, faithful. You could not be called uh, righteous or upright. So I'm not, I'm not knocking that as a category and as a, as a great way of speaking. But I am asserting that there's a different category and another way of speaking that's equally as valid, 
biblical, thoroughly biblical, and been lost to us as Lutherans. We need to regain this. We need to regain this. And this is a, a relative way of speaking, not an absolute way of speaking, but a relative way of speaking. And here we see, we see Solomon, and we'll see the Lord himself use this category, use this method and mode. So Solomon says, He walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. Here we see the humility of Solomon. But we also remember that Solomon is a type of Christ. He is David's son. He is the son of David who sits on the throne. And so we cannot help, especially this time of the church here, Epiphany, in reflecting on the son of David who is Christ, who sits on the everlasting throne. And then too, by extension, this description of of Solomon as a, as a little child, his self-description, even though he's not, in fact, he literally has a child at this point in time, reminds us too of, of how Christ comes as a child. And at this time in Epiphany, we're looking at you know, the visitation of the wise men. Um, I think in the three-year lectionary, at least in one of the series, you're, you're going with Luke to the temple to see Jesus. So there's a, there's a reminder that even as a child, the son of David, Christ our Lord, reigns. And we want to keep that in mind as we, as we look at this son of David who sits on the throne, Solomon. We want to see in what ways he is a positive type of Christ and in, and in what ways he shows us uh, how he lacks and how Christ excels and exceeds him. Solomon continues, Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? All right, well, a beautiful, beautiful request and quite well known. I will point you to the study note in the Lutheran Study Bible on verse 9. There you'll find that an understanding mind, as it is rendered by the ESV in English, is literally or more literally a hearing heart. A hearing heart. Well, who would be doing the speaking? God chiefly. God chiefly. So governing in accordance with what one hears from God's word but also a heart willing to listen carefully to those that you must render a judgment, right? So, so that's, uh, that's another aspect of this. Yeah, Hebrew verb to hear frequently means to hearken or to obey, to act in obedience to God. Solomon wanted to be able to discern between good and evil. So there's this beautiful vertical dimension where he's wants to, he wants to hear what the Lord has to say. He wants to obey. He wants to know good and evil. There's a, there's a horizontal dimension. 
Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind for what purpose? So that I can just enjoy it for myself? No, to govern your people. So it's a wise mind in service of neighbor. And, I, and that is, you know, when, where God gives wisdom, we want to use that wisdom in service of our neighbor. And so Solomon becomes a wonderful example and type in that regard, to act in obedience to God. The study note continues, such discrimination required a mind capable of analytic judgments. However, only a heart that listens to the Lord could supply the basis for making correct decisions. The desire to conform to the divine way and the willpower to act accordingly. So unlike the Garden of Eden, they're not going to do the evil part. Yeah, yeah, we want to do a reversal of the Garden of Eden here. Listen to the Lord instead of disobey the Lord. Yes. In Luther's sacristy prayer that many, many pastors pray every Sunday before going in. There's a line, and I'll have to paraphrase it, but it's that I might rightly understand the Word of God and diligently perform it. (laughs) In the first place, it's a miracle and gift of God to be able to properly understand His Word. Okay. Um, To go beyond mere notitia, mere, mere knowledge, Uh, the kind such that the demons have, as James explains, but to actually deeply understand it, believe in it. That's that's one thing. That's one thing. But then how to act upon it, how to diligently perform it, Um, or in the study note here, the the willpower to act according to it. That's a second thing, isn't it? That's a second thing. Oh, how deeply we have to pray for both of these all the time. What we've seen so far with Solomon is he has a sharp mind. He has a sharp mind. Remember, remember where he, he discerns the shenanigans right away. Um, who was it? Was it? Remember they go to his mother? Was it Adinijah? Yeah, I can't. Mother, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Adinijah who goes to his goes to his mother. You know, give me give me Shimei as my wife, or Abishag. I mean, right? Abishag. That's who it is. Abishag the Shunammite. Yeah, give me her as my, as my wife. And um, yeah, sorry, Shimei's the, the dude. Give me Abishag as my wife. And, and Solomon sees right through it. So Solomon has a sharp and discerning mind, no doubt about it. And, and I'm sure God gave him all the, that all the more. But he's, he's praying for something more deep here. He's praying that he would, he would be able to guide and govern and do this supernatural task of governance in accordance with God's will. Could you imagine what changes we'd see in our country if our politicians had this, <laughs> this attitude? <laughs> oh, my. And then we, you know, if we can't have that in our leadership, we should, we should pray that God would grant us leaders that desire that and grant it richly to our leaders. But then we should also pray it for our, for our pastors and our leaders in the church. We should also pray it for ourselves to, to be able to discern good from evil and that by listening to the Word of God believing that Word of God, and then last but certainly not least, applying that, having the willpower and the fortitude um, to press forward with the truth and with what is right. Love this section. There is so much packed in here. 
an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Finally, someone who realizes that governing people is, an, humanly speaking, an impossible task. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life <laughs> or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. So many beautiful things about our God here. So many beautiful things. It pleased the Lord. You see how God wants to interact with us. I mean, of course, and it, God is transcendent and all-knowing. I mean, he knew ahead of time what Solomon was going to ask. And on and on and on. But that's not how God wants to relate to us. He wants to relate to us personally, in time and space, as a heavenly father. He wants to, he, he wants to you know, in, su in such a way, he's not going to say, oh, I already know what you want, Solomon, and I've already granted it. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, he engages him. What would, you, what would you have? And when Solomon answers, it pleases the Lord. His answer pleases the Lord. So God says, because you've asked of this and have not asked for yourself. Now, um, these things, long life, of course, that's what all, all human beings want, which I always kind of think is stupid. Isn't there a, isn't there a fundamental stupidity in us? <laughs> we all want to live forever until we do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The prayer for long life, you know, so that, we can, so that we can all eventually become Yoda, I guess. You know, our bodies bent over and our hair's all fallen out. Um, no, but that is, that is what man values, long life. And, uh, and even we as Christians find our flesh betraying that, you know. But long life is not asked for, nor are riches. There would be the other thing. There would be the other thing, mammon. Jesus says you cannot serve God in mammon. Here, uh, Solomon shows he does not desire riches. And then the life of your enemies. Oh, yeah. One could ponder a long time on these three. The life of your enemies that, you know, that God would give them into your hand, that you'd get vengeance, that you'd have peace, dominance, that kind of thing. So Solomon asks for none of this. But ask for yourself understanding to discern what is right. And so behold, I now do according to your word. Look, look at this. Look at this. God says, I do according to your word. I mean, here we, glim here we glimpse the, the humble heart of God, and it's just astonishing. It's just astonishing. That's, that's one of the most astonishing things about the cross itself. If you've been listening to any of my sermons in the past few months, <laughs> hopefully you've heard this. But it's one of the most astonishing and delightful things about God's self-revelation in the cross, that, that what he's doing in the cross is, is a humbling of himself, but not in such a way that it's contrary to who he is. It's not like, oh, jeez, I'm so embarrassed, or I'm God and I'm doing this completely ungodlike thing. Um, I'm doing what's necessary, but I kind of begrudge it. No, 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 no. He's doing, he's doing exactly what God does. God is love, and this is what love looks like. He's doing the most godlike thing, the thing that's most natural and in accord with his character in the cross. And 
And here too you see this same astonishing true goodness and humility of God. You know, it's glimpsing, it's glimpsing the humility of God that causes you to want to lay on your, you know, lay on your face prostrate before him. Who is like you? Who is good like you? Who is pure like you? Who is humble like you? It's a very different way than bowing down before sheer power, you know, because you have to or because you're so in awe of it or something like that. It's a very different thing. Bowing down at God who is love, who is mercy, who is self-sacrifice, who is serving of his neighbor. <laughs> Isn't that a weird thing to say? God creates neighbors so that he has someone to serve. <laughs> That's so incredible. It's so upside down from our human egos, isn't it? Love it. So yeah, we glimpse that. We glimpse that in his words to Solomon. I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So thus, thus then we say that Solomon is the wisest man ever to have lived. And, and that's true, of course, if you discount our Lord, who is wisdom incarnate. Solomon holds the crown. And then look at, look at God's heart here in verse 13. As if this were not enough. <laughs> verse 13, I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Isn't this exactly like Jesus? You know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. In Matthew, on the Sermon of the Mount, where he's talking about not being worried about what, you'll, what you should eat or drink or what you should wear. Your Father in heaven knows that you have need of these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is precisely what Solomon's doing here. And God adds unto Solomon all these things that he didn't ask for. And so he adds them unto us as well. He promises this. That word fulfilled and promised ultimately and, and unspeakably so in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. When we'll be clothed in glorified bodies, when we'll dwell with him forever, we will look back on ourselves and think, how could I ever have doubted him? How could I ever have thought that he wouldn't do me right? How could I ever have dreamed that this is what he had in store for me? And now that I see it, I'm embarrassed that I ever, ever thought those thoughts about him. <laughs> ever doubted his fatherly love or provision. I mean, that day is coming when, when what we grasp hold of with our faith and struggle to grasp hold of because of our, the weakness of our flesh and sinful nature. The day is coming when, when we will see with our eyes. We'll see with our eyes. Okay, so he gives unto Solomon riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And this really then, this really then culminates in the high point, and just in terms of the nation state of Israel and its history, the high point of Israel. I mean, in some sense, it, it makes sense to say David and Solomon, but if you had to choose, it's really the reign of Solomon that's the high point of, of Israel. Verse 14, now we have it from the, the lips of the Lord himself. 
And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So here, here God affirms what Solomon earlier said, that David did, in fact, walk in God's ways, keeping God's statutes and God's commandments. As Again, not, not in this absolutist category. That's certainly not, sh- not, not true at all. You know, there is none who, who does good, no, not one. And the law stops every mouth. But in this second category, in this relative sort of way, and we remember here too, this is really helpful to keep in mind, that walking in God's ways, keeping God's statutes and His commandments includes repenting of our sin and receiving absolution. In the Old Testament, that's the sacrificial system at the heart of that. In in the New Testament, it's the blood of Christ and and the Lord's Supper that's at the heart of that. So so we ought not mistake these as moral perfection, um, but but as walking in the way of repentance and walking in, in the way of God's forgiveness and grace and mercy and utilizing the gifts God has given to strengthen us on the way. Yes, please. Um, from the offerers, uh, sacrificials. Yes. To pagan gods. Right, right. Yeah. So the the original text, the Hebrew text, um, as well as the Septuagint, aren't going to specify actual pagan worship quite as quite as explicitly as maybe the Spanish way of translation. But one thing I mentioned last week when we began here is that there are, there are foreshadowings, hints, and allusions to what's to come. For example, as you pointed out and as I pointed out last week, chapter 3 begins with Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay. Well, this is what's expected of kings. And this is what kings do, and this is, this is political as much. I mean, it's not like they you know, were walking in a forest and fell in love with each other, like a Disney movie. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is a political... So, but, but what is that showing? This is contrary to God's will. In, in his first will, in the sense of man is made for woman, and the two become one flesh, and so already you have sort of this polygamous thing going on. But, but you also have uh, an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, what does that remind everyone of? Slavery and the bondage and, and paganism. And so now you've got an intermarrying between a, an Israelite king and a, and a pagan uh, wife. And he took Pharaoh's daughter and, and brought her into the city of David. Okay, And so you've, got, you've already got a foreshadowing here of these very things that are later on going to very explicitly get Solomon in trouble and lead him directly into paganism. Okay, but there's a kind of ambiguity there. There's no, te- there's no explicit you know, condemnation of this in the text or frowning upon it or obvious negative consequence, etc. And then, and then we move right into this talk of high places. Right. And high places is a loaded term. I think the study note, and you might have been referring to this, in the Lutheran Study Bible, the note on chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Right in the middle there, you have, you have building and then an ellipsis and then high places. Here's the note. Other prominent features of Solomon's career were his extensive building program and his tolerance in worship practices. 
which is a, a pretty subtle way of putting it. Um, directly or indirectly, all these things contributed to Solomon's fall, explaining in advance why, quote, his heart had turned away from the Lord, end quote. And these are references to chapter 11. Well, yeah, I, I don't, there's a tension in the text, to be sure. So, so the text is always more than literature, right? But it's never less than literature. And that means that, means that the author of 1 Kings has, has used his artistry in order to communicate, and he, he, wants to lay the, he wants to lay and establish the foundation of Solomon's beginning as a godly king and God's blessing of him with extreme wisdom and then riches and well-being for him and his kingdom. But he's very artfully, very tactfully given us some red flag foreshadowing, hasn't he? With the marriage and with the discussion of the high places. Again, I think, I think very artfully, he doesn't just come right out and say it. He lets the reader ponder that these crack, as he's laying this foundation, these cracks in the foundation were already there, if you have eyes to see it, if you know the story. So there's nothing explicit in the text about the high places being pagan worship, but simply that language of the high places, nine times out of ten in the scriptures, refers to pagan worship. So very artfully he uses that language to remind us that, boy, in, in some respects the foundation looks incredible and amazing. In other respects there's already cracks there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that comment, that opportunity to consider those themes a little more deeply. So this is a beautiful section, and like so many of these sections, just worth reading and rereading and pondering over and thinking about and considering much more you know, than, than initially meets the eye here. All right, verse 15, and Solomon awoke. Remember, this was all in the context of the dream that he was speaking to God and God was speaking to him. Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Must have been a pre pretty vivid dream, because <laughs> there's almost an implication there that he didn't know he was dreaming. He awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So this place, this place rather than the the high places, now we have the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm just glancing down here to see if the study note adds anything. No, not that I can see. Not that I can see. All right, so Solomon has this newfound wisdom. How's he going to use it? And that really is what comes up at the end of chapter 3, and then honestly into chapters 4, 5, and what follows, which is uh, really the preparations and building of the temple. So this, these next chapters really serve to show us how that wisdom manifests itself. It's not so much a chronological then in verse 16 as it is a logical then. 
So it's not as if, you know, he, he's just finished offering and, and doing his worship and he turns around and boom, there's two prostitutes there. Um, that's, that would be a misreading. Be that as it may, at some point, he is confronted with two prostitutes. And they come to him, this is verse 16, of course, they come to the king and stood before him. I mean, even there we know that all is not right in Israel. <laughs> the one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. Terrible tragedy, terrible tragedy. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. What cruelty! The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. All right. Very famous story. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So there is an example, and the example that the author gives us to really show forth how it is that Solomon was given the supernatural gift by God to discern between good and evil and to judge with uh, right understanding. Well, I don't have anything to add to that. Any thoughts you have on that section? Choose yes, your friends more carefully. That's Choose your friends more carefully? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, that, that, <sighs> you know, and did she go back living with this woman? You know, that's the other question you want. And, uh, no, it's not a good situation. I mean, they're both prostitutes, so. Yeah. Now, Sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's not to take away any culpability you know, on the part of the women, but, but sometimes this is a socioeconomic reality and they, there is no other choice kind of thing. So, um, you know, 
these women perhaps ought also to be pitied. Yeah, but it is a, it is a bizarre situation, and, and how, would ever, how would one ever be able to guess? So Solomon concocts a way and figures it out. All right, any other thoughts on this section? Again, very famous, but I think straightforward enough. Chapter 4, then. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. I think this is the section that goes on forever. Would it, can I have your permission? I mean, we have secretaries and recorders and commanders and a bunch of names that I'm going to struggle to pronounce. <laughs> I mean, again, I don't mean to disparage these sections in the scriptures at all. They, they show forth Solomon's wisdom in, in whom he selects, God's goodness in giving these people to the kingdom at the time in which they're needed. God certainly does that for us as well. He gives us what we need when we need it. He surrounds us with, with people who will help us and support us, and that is the case here. Um, I'm just going to skim through this, this section. A lot of this shows Solomon's wisdom in terms of organization and organizing the nation and putting the right people in the right spot. So it's a manifestation of his wisdom. And I've finished scanning with my eyes rather speedily through verse 19. So maybe we would opt to just skip over that since that's names and positions and titles. And I don't see that much that for our purposes is substantive. Uh, so with your permission, we'll just skip on to verse 20. Of course, if your eyes have captured anything of, of interest, I'm happy to look over that with you. Or if you want to bring that up at our next class, we certainly can entertain it then. Verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. This harkens back to God's promise that he made to Abraham, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So as many as the stars in the sky, the sand and the sea. Yeah, yeah, it harkens back to that. So we're reminded that God keeps his promises. Here they are in the promised land. God keeps his promises. And of course, we would be remiss to not pass over that thought, though, without considering, of course, that God keeps his promises in an earthly way to Abraham, but more importantly, in a spiritual way. So that in the offspring, in the seed who is Christ, then we, the, the true sons of Abraham are those who have faith in God, faith in this Christ. And the true sons of Abraham that are as the sand by the sea. Those are the saints in heaven and, and the saints on earth, the whole people of God. And doesn't it say nations, all nations from you? Yes. When he promises Abraham. Yes. So the, so the promise to Abraham has a, has a kind of earthly fulfillment, just numerical and biological, but it also has a heavenly fulfillment, and that's what the apostles seem to lock on to most of all. Um, that is... To be a son of Abraham is to have the faith of Abraham, not to have the genes of Abraham. Right. 
Okay. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Excuse me. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. It's a lot of pancakes. <laughs> 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks. What's a roebuck? Does anybody know? I forgot to look that up. <laughs> a deer? Okay. A roebuck is a kind of deer. All right. If someone finds out from, uh, from Google something different, let me know. All right, so uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Oh, and fattened, fowl. That takes us through verse 23. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is in the study note. Species of deer, also known as fallow deer. And then the fattened fowl are likely geese. Hmm. So, so the study note estimates collected provisions could feed at least 1,500 people, the royal family officials and regular troops. God bless them richly. <laughs> Verse 24, For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Sol Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table each one in his month. Yeah, again, again, uh, typologically, we're seeing Christ in his kingdom and the honor that he gives us to come to his table each week in Holy Communion receive fare even more sumptuous. And we don't have to wait for our month. <laughs> we can come every Sunday. They let nothing be lacking. Verse 28, Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So, you know, those are the, uh, the Einsteins of the ancient world, I guess. He's smarter than all of them. 
and wiser than all of them. So, all right, well, God blesses him richly, not just uh, in terms of wealth and prosperity and safety and peace, but also then in incredible wisdom. And if you've, if you've ever poked around the, the Proverbs, for example, you can see this, the breadth, the incredible breadth, you know, to say nothing of the depth and complex ideas and some ideas that are difficult to, you know, c contemplate from Proverbs because of the linguistic barrier or the, the barrier that time, you know, and culture present, we just don't know. Um, but in other cases, just really, really ponderous and counterintuitive kinds of things really challenging things that are meant to be chewed over. And so that, uh, that wisdom of Solomon is alive and well for us today in, in the book of Proverbs. And of course, Ecclesiastes, which I love and is a, is a masterpiece. You know, just a real masterpiece. In terms of, in terms of depth and analysis and, and impact. Yeah. So um, we're, blessed to, we're blessed to have some of that, um, you know, Song of Songs is sometimes attributed to uh, Solomon. One, one avenue that is of great interest to me that I just have not had time to look into. Apparently, Song of Solomon was in the early church one of the books they used most frequently for catechesis. Yeah. They'd, they'd read it, of course, uh, typologically, allegorically. Um, you know, obviously, it's a love song, and they would read it in the way of Christ and his church, but they would use that as, as instruction. I think the only time it gets dusted off in the Christian church these days is for marriage seminars, which is probably not the right way to use it. <laughs> what is that book called? We've got it sitting on our dining room table. I've been... Our kids' study Bible that, that I try to use the lessons out of that, that I try to, you know, teach my kids so they don't become pagan. Um, <laughs> that, got, that got put away, and so I grabbed, I grabbed this other book, and it's from CPH. It's worth getting. It's, it's kind of, it's a little out there, but it's still worth getting. And I'm, I'm trying to think of the name of it. Icky, sticky, hairy, scary things of the Bible or something like this. And it's got, it's got this great, this great, it's all poetry, and it's got this great poem that summarizes the, the, uh, the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. And the picture is, you know, this guy who's like, looks like a tree, because, you know, in one of the verses, the woman figure, the, the female figure says, you know, you're handsome like a tree. And I can't remember what the, what the drawing of the girl looks like, but Genevieve thought this was hilarious because in the poem, the guy says, your teeth are beautiful like freshly shaven sheep. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty much right out of Song of Solomon, but Genevieve thought that was outrageous. She ran over to the bathroom, smiled in the mirror. You know? <laughs> oh, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, so this is, I mean, not an easy book. But a beautiful book and filled with, filled with uh, you know, strange kinds of, of poetry, imagery, wisdom. So, so Solomon's wisdom, uh, even today, still comes down to us. Jesus references Solomon um, and in a way, uh, you know, as, is, as is the case, that Jesus is all, all, those, all the great fathers of the Old Testament. Jesus is everything they are and more. And so... In a very real sense, in, in our Lord, we see a greater than Solomon is here.
Yes, so what else did Solomon do? What else was he up to? Well, verse 30, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed. Oh, yeah, we did that, we did that, we did that. Back to uh, 32, 32. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Yeah. So the, uh, the study note on verse 33 says this, Solomon did not engage in a scientific study of botany and zoology as we know such disciplines today. The lessons he drew from plant and animal life surpassed in variety and in profundity of thought, quote, the wisdom of all the people of the East. That would be the Babylonians and the Arabs and all the wisdom of Egypt. Only a few such maxims have been preserved in Proverbs. And so you can see they've got some examples there. Proverbs 6, 6, 19, 12, chapter 30, verses 15 through 31. So, in other words, much of what Solomon wrote for us has been lost and, and much of what he said, but just incredible. And there's something that harkens back to, Luther reads Genesis this way, that Adam and Eve you know, had great understanding of nature and the world around that, is, that was subsequently lost on account of the fall. And one of the places where Luther points this to is in, the, is in Adam naming the animals, giving them a name. To, I mean, he's not just sitting there and being like, platypus? I mean, you know, like that's, that's, <laughs> that's not really the import. Um, by, by naming something, what's really meant is you're understanding its identity. And the name that you granted is, is communicating a meaning and an essence of the thing itself. So it's really this masterful thing. It is, it is very much analogous in some ways, although, well, maybe overlapping semantic spheres would be the better way to understand it. When parents name their children, you know, the, the, the idea of parents naming their children, I mean, what a travesty this has become today, where, where naming, naming your children is like, what sounds hip or trendy or a pleasant sound or something that you make with your mouth or something like that, all the thought that goes into it. Um, but yes, yes, as, we, uh, as you think about naming your children, you're, you're thinking, and if you're thinking kind of a biblical way, you're trying to think, what identity do I want my child to have? What heritage do I want to connect them with? And some places, some places, uh, you know, our parents mess that up. That's all right. It's one, of the, it's one of the reasons why that, I think that, that that section in Revelation talks about God giving us a name which only we know kind of thing. That's connected to the baptismal reality of being his children, no doubt about it. But I, I suspect that God, God is the one who names us precisely as the one who knows our identity. Much as, much as Adam knows the animals and thus names them, God knows us and thus names us as his children. And so, so this ancient wisdom of Adam and Eve prior to the fall, now the fall happens, man's wisdom deteriorates <laughs> and continues to deteriorate, as is obvious. <laughs> uh, 
as is obvious. Oh, brutal, brutal. I wonder how stupid we'll get. We'll be like cattle when the Lord returns. But here Solomon stands out for his understanding of, of nature and the natural world, world and seeing the hand of God, the designer and creator, and then seeing the deeper realities and mysteries that God has written into creation. I think, I think to some extent there's an invitation, particularly in our overly scientific age where it's just scientism. Uh, we ought to consider and ponder these things as Christians. I mean, there's an invitation here to look at the natural world and see what wisdom we might discern from it. Take it or leave it. Well, isn't that what Paul talked about what, in either Romans or Galatians? That there, there's no excuse for why you're not knowing God because you have the natural world. Yeah, the natural world, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gives, gives adequate yeah. right. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a fascinating ar- argument by Paul. It's essentially there's no such thing as an atheist. <laughs> there are those that have simply repressed the truth within themselves to the point where they've deluded themselves. Well, shall we, uh, shall we mosey on? I'm sorry for the, the lengthy delay there. I think Solomon's a very interesting character. I enjoy considering these things. Okay, how else does his, does his wisdom manifest itself? Do the blessings of God to him manifest themselves? Chapter 5. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. And what does that sound like? That sounds like the warfare of the son of David of our Lord right now. And remember, as the scriptures say, the last enemy to be put under his feet will be death. Death. So we can, we can think of this as exactly correlative to Christ and our present circumstances. Verse 4, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so, <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? That'd be nice. I'd like, to, I'd like to go back to roughly the year, I don't know what this is, 1,020 or 1,030 or something like that. I sure beat 2,020. 2,021 so far isn't much better, is it? No. <laughs> I'm disappointed to hear that. I was hoping you were going <laughs> to surprise me and say, oh, maybe it's just bad for you. Well... All right, so yes, the, the, the Lord has given him rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune, verse 5. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. And again, think of that. Think of that as Jesus. Isn't that what he's doing? He's enthroned, he's reigning, and he's building the house of the Lord, which happens to be all the saints, the whole church, climaxing with, climaxing with the people of God being the temple of God and the dwelling place of God with man. We'll talk about this. We'll talk about this. Hopefully I'll remember to say it next week. But just as there's a, a transition from the tabernacle to the temple, 
and the Old Testament. There's a parallel. Christ comes tabernacled in our flesh. That's the language of John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled with us. But just as there was a transition in the Old Testament from tabernacle to temple, there is now a transition from the incarnation to the, uh, what would you say, the, the dwelling place of God inside his people as church. Christ being the foundation, the cornerstone, the center, the all in all. But there is a transition from the tabernacling of the incarnation into the full manifestation of God's presence with us as the church. Okay, well, this is still the king. This is still the king of Tyre addressing Solomon and Solomon uh, responding. So, verse 5, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. You've, you've probably heard that expression in the Psalms. Apparently, the cedars of Lebanon were wonderful. Solomon continues, and my servants will join... Wait a minute, is this Solomon or is this... I've lost track. Well, my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set... For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Yeah, so that, I think that that's all Solomon, isn't it, yet? Responding to the king of Tyre. You recognize Tyre and Sidon from the New Testament uh, readings, and you have those referenced here. Okay, verse 7. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. While Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil, Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a treaty. Now, of course, the, the remnants of the temple that exist in Israel today are not this same temple. This is the temple of Solomon. We don't have any photographs of it, obviously. And this temple is uh, raised here and then um, destroyed, of course, in 587. Uh, by the Babylonians, and then the temple is rebuilt, but not to its former glory. So as we're, as we're reading this description, you're thinking to yourself, that doesn't seem like the temple I'm familiar or used to thinking about. It's because it's not. 
This is the first temple. Uh, and, and what we most frequently think of, the temple that was there when Jesus was around, that's the second temple. Okay, so let's, let's just simply leave off there. Next week, we'll pick up at chapter 5, verse 13. And as you can tell, we'll spend some time talking about the building of Solomon's temple. The Lord be with you.